Well, hey, New City, so glad uh, you are with us today. My name is Nate, good to be a pastor here at New City. Big idea here to start us off is that we are an imperfect people, being courageous, believing in the power of Jesus to make all things new. Uh, we are imperfect. You, can, you, you certainly should feel welcome at New City. None of us uh, are, are reading our own press. I can promise you that. We're imperfect people, being courageous, believing in Jesus' power, really to bring renewal to everything. And that's kind of the hope today, is that we can be participants in the renewal work of Jesus. After the service today, I'm going to have a live Q&A. Uh, this message has some, uh, some really, I think, challenging opportunities for us. I mean, I think the message is challenging to our thinking about politics, and so I would assume uh, that's of interest to you right now in uh, the world. And so if you have some interest in engaging with a Christian's place in politics, uh, you might want to be paying attention to the message and tune in to Instagram for that live Q&A later. But before we jump into the message, let's just celebrate something that's really cool right now happening in the world. Uh, sports are back. That's awesome. I mean, no crowds, but sports are back. I'm not a huge baseball fan, but I have uh, really enjoyed watching the MLS. Uh, I've enjoyed watching the MLS's back tournament. Watched that quite a bit. Basketball uh, this weekend is going to be fun to watch. But baseball has been the one that's really caught my attention because they've CGI'd in fans at the baseball games. And I have to be honest, I, uh, and listening to some of the uh, Fox broadcasts of the MLS games and listening to some of the, I did watch some baseball this weekend, uh, watching some of the baseball games, uh, I uh, am kind of jealous. I mean, they got crowd noise, they've got CGI fans and and, and I'm missing my, my people. I'm missing my New City folks. And, and in particular, I'm missing those of you who are vocal in services. So I created an amen button. Uh, and so the, the amen button just is a way for me to pipe in my own studio sound. And so whenever I hit the amen button, you, you should be hearing today some, uh, some interaction there, some piped in crowd noise. And so I'd uh, love for you to uh, not only hear that uh, in the background, but also participate in your home. Uh, give a shout out uh, if you want to, if there's a point that grabs your, uh, your attention. Uh, a big idea in this entire series has been this. You have permission to be a priest, for your home to be a place of ministry, for your neighborhood to be your parish. And the key verse for that is 1 Peter 2.9. Here, here's the verse. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Listen to that. A chosen race, a royal priesthood, uh, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim his excellencies, uh, how he called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, that that's who you are. You're a priesthood, but I want to add some texture to that idea of being a priesthood. You aren't just a priesthood, uh, you're, you're exiles and sojourners. We are, together, church, an immigrant priesthood living in exile. That's our status. Uh, to put it in the, in, in, the, in the words of Peter from our reading today in verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, as strangers in a foreign land, as exiles who don't belong to that foreign land, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Uh, to put this in the words of Jesus, that we are in the world, not of the world. We are in it, but not of it. Uh, you can hear this language of Jesus in John 17 as he's praying for us. He said, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And so we are to be in the world, but not of the world, to consider ourselves, in the words of 1 Peter, exiles and strangers in this world. So that begs the question, how are we to live in a world 
where we don't belong? Like how are we to live in a world where we do not belong? You can see some of the tension that First Peter is addressing here. Uh, Christians are, in First Peter, living in their own cultural context in a world that is not supportive of Christianity. In fact, he says uh, that in, in, in verse 12 of First Peter 2, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so when they speak against you as evildoers. And so there seems to be, uh, in this current cultural moment, uh, people looking at Christians and accusing them of being evildoers. Many of the accusations of the time included uh, Christians were cannibals because they uh, ate the flesh of Christ and drank his blood, obviously symbolic of the death uh, of Jesus that we take at communion, uh, the, the bread representing his body and the, the fruit of the vine or the juice of the wine representing his blood. Uh, he says in verse uh, 13, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? And so there was some verbal threat uh, there was some, uh, some, some uh, environment sort of happening for Christians where they were feeling threatened verbally. And I think Edmund Clowney hits it right. He said, Peter knows that the opposition of the Gentile world will not be limited to gossip. It's not just the harsh words that he's afraid of here. The Christians will be accused in the courts. False charges will lead to imprisonment and death. Peter had escaped the sword of Herod, but he would not escape the perverse hatred of Nero. And so this accusations against Christians did lead to Christian persecution. This is obviously a climate that wasn't supportive of the Christian faith. See, Christians cannot live, and this is really the teaching of 1 Peter, is that we cannot live in this world without holding certain tensions. And what he's advocating for in this passage is for us to hold certain tensions. See, in life, there are problems to solve and tensions to hold. In fact, you might say that uh, leaders, the best leaders, are able to identify the problems that need to be solved and the tensions that need to be held. And the tension between grace and truth is something we hold. We can't resolve that tension, the tension between grace and truth. When Jesus came in John 1.14, the Bible says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, the the tension we are required to hold right now is is, is growing tighter, I think, than, I mean, any time in my living history, the tension between grace and truth. I mean, it's just growing tighter and tighter. And and I think we have to resist, right, the temptation to let go of either grace or to let go of truth. And and it's, it's, man, it's really hard uh, this has happened uh, at our home uh, lately where uh, this tension has been, you know, we're trying to hold it. And, it. and I would, you know, Vanessa, I don't know how you guys watch, you know, your Netflix, but we usually watch our Netflix with a phone in hand. And uh, so you never know if we're talking about the show that we're watching or the news feed we're reading, uh, at, you know, at any given moment. But, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not been, you know, uh, unheard of in our home recently for me to yell out to Vanessa, did did you see what so-and-so said? And I, I thought they were normal, but they're, they're conspiracy theorists, you know? And, and I'm like, the tension's growing, and my fingers are like, I want to, you know, respond. And I think what's happening in the world right now is that tension between truth and, and grace has gotten really tight. And it's, boy, it's a real temptation to let go of the grace 
and just hold on to the truth. Because the tension, we want to resolve it. But if we, but if we give up on grace, if, if we give up on grace, we've given up on the gospel, we've given up on the witness, which is exactly what Peter's teaching. Listen to 1 Peter 2.12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when you speak against your evildoers, they may see your good deeds and, uh, and glorify God on the day of visitation. What he's speaking of here is that our good deeds in a, in a very tense cultural moment are a witness to the gospel and he's saying that the Holy Spirit may visit some people because of your good deeds and rescue them. Now he goes on to apply it in several domains of life. He goes on to apply it in our relationship to government, our relationship to work. He goes on to apply it in our relationship in, in our homes. He says about the woman who has an unbelieving husband that if by her conduct she is winsome, that she may win over her husband with her winsome conduct. In other words, win him over to the gospel. And so how are we to live in a world where we don't belong? Well, we are in it and not of it. But if we're only truth speaking in such a way that we're defining ourselves as not being of it and not grabbing a hold of the calling to be also for it, we're missing out on our missional calling as Christians. And so yes, we are in the world, and we are not of the world, but we are to be radically for it. And so 1 Peter 2.12, he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds. Christians are to be <laughs> visibly good people. Yeah, right? I mean, Christians are to be visibly good people people. Peter here is quoting Jesus himself from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. In the same way, Jesus says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. To put it just a slightly different way, Christians should not only preach good news messages, we should live good news lives. Like our lives should be putting on display the good news that we believe in. There are three observations in this text. And by the way, I, the, the reading was a short version of the longer text. I'm reading on into chapter three to get the full scope of what's happening here. But there are three big takeaways. A good news life does a couple things. One of those is a good news life starts good news conversations. That's what our whole Be Good News initiative is about, by the way, is being a good news people uh, so that we can start good news conversations. And in 1 Peter 3.15, we read, but in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense. Now, in scope of what he's been saying in 1 Peter 2 and 3, what he's saying here is your life should be lived in such a way that's calling into question the hope that you believe. It's giving you opportunities to be a, a witness, to start good news conversations. A good news life starts good news conversations, and a good news life also creates goodwill with others. Goodwill with others. 1 Peter 3.13, he says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? The word zealous here is, in my perspective, strategically political. <laughs> He's saying, you remember the zealots? and how they tried to overthrow Rome with their guerrilla warfare, Christianity is different. 
He's calling on Christians to kind of do some guerrilla warfare of good works, to be zealous for good, to, to, be, to put on lives that, that are just so radically good that people are looking from the outside in going, there's something different about these folks. And so a good news life, it starts good news conversations, it creates good will with others. Who's there to harm you if you're zealous for doing good and protects the church community? He says this in, first, uh, in, in chapter two, verse 15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you shall put to silence, literally here, muzzle the ignorance of foolish people. And so when they do come after you and accusations are leveraged against you as a Christian, your good deeds have a way of muzzling those who are accusing you of things. Because visibly, you are good. You don't have just a message you preach on the weekend, but you have a life that you live that is reflective of something you're holding on to, a value you're holding on to. In fact, you could say that the community engagement of first century Christians dramatically accelerated the spread of Christianity. And I would strongly encourage you, especially in light of the pandemic we are living in, that you go by the rise of Christianity by Rodney Stark, and you put that on your Kindle and spend some time reading that or listening to it and hear the stories of how Christians, during very difficult times, put on display the good works informed by the gospel and how that enabled the rapid spread of Christianity. Here's a quick excerpt from Rodney Stark's book. He says, Christianity revitalized life in Greco-Roman cities by providing new norms and new kinds of social relationships able to cope with many urgent problems. Like the cities filled with homelessness and, 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 and impoverished people, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachments. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and an expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violence, ethnic strife, Christianity offered, offered a new basis for solidarity. And to cities faced with epidemics, like the coronavirus, fires, and earthquakes, Christianity offered effective nursing services. You see, a good news life is always going to have two components, the love of God and the love of others. Jesus removed the mystery of what it means to be obedient to the law of God when he said, if you want to know what it's all about, it's about loving God with your everything and then loving your neighbor. That's what Christianity is about. If you want to live, you want to live in light of the good news message of Jesus, it's going to show up in your life in loving worship of God and loving the neighbor. And so a good news life is one that actively, actively loves God and loves others. In contrast, a sinful life is ultimately one that loves itself most of all. And that's one of the things that Jesus rescues us from, as he rescues us from our own selfishness. Edmund Clowney says, this whole section is in direct antithesis to the spirit of the world, where every individual and group demands its rights and understands liberty as freedom from responsibility. The apostle describes what is, for our time, a strange liberty. I want to write an article one day 
about what it means as a Christian to, to possess a strange liberty. You see, our freedom from self-centeredness can only come through our being bound in our service to God and others. This is the strange liberty he's speaking of because our freedom is only accessible to us in so much that it is attached to our being bound to a love of God and a love of others. You can read about this in verse 16. Live as people who are free, he says, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. By the way, how often in modern society do you, see, do you hear that? It's a free country, isn't it? As a, as a justification for all kinds of evil. So live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. In other words, your freedom is, is connected to as a Christian, bound to your servanthood of God. You see, the way of Jesus involves living a just life in an unjust world. It involves living a just life in an unjust world. He, he's a, he applies this in 1 Peter 2 uh, to a work-life relationship where in your work environment you have been taken advantage of. And he says, hey, if you're being taken advantage of uh, in, in your work-life environment, you're looking for a, uh, some biblical rationale for how a Christian should behave in an unjust environment, look no further than Jesus, verse 21. For, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so you might follow in his steps. So if you want to know how to live as a just person in an unjust, unjust world, Jesus is your example. Here he is. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to, to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And so the way of Jesus is the way of self-sacrifice. It's the way of selflessness. Like we were saved because Jesus who was perfect, lived the life that you could not live and died the death that you should have died, was buried in the grave, rose again, and gave us new life. He sacrificed his rights. Consider equality of God something not to be grasped so that we could have the rights of sonship and we could receive his inheritance, both men and women receiving the inheritance equally. See, the way of Jesus is also humble and kind. These are words, humble and kind, or you could even use the word gentle, that don't describe our current cultural environment. You have to really look to find people right now who are humble and kind. L listen to how Peter describes this good news life of the Christian. Finally, all of you, all of you, have unity of mind, speaking here to the church, sympathy, brotherly love, 
tender heart and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. The word here, bless, is where we get the word eulogy from. We usually wait until somebody dies to say nice things about them. (laughs) For to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. You see, I think what's happened in the current moment that we're living in is that people have decided that giving grace at this time is too hard. Or maybe he's giving too much permission. And it would just be easier right now to be, to be truthful, but not to be grace-giving. And as people slowly let go of qualities like sympathy, and love, tenderheartedness, and humble-mindedness, and as they start embracing, repaying evil for evil and retaliatory ethics, I think what happens is people become more and more fundamentalist. They cul-de-sac into areas of society, harden their positions, And as fundamentalism increases in our country, you can expect, this is predictable. I don't have a crystal ball, but you can predict this to be true. Retaliatory behavior will become normative. That what you can expect as positions harden, and by the way, this, this election coming up isn't going to soften anyone's positions. And as positions harden in our country, what you can expect is a rise in retaliatory behavior. And what I'm fearful of is that that will become normative in American discourse. I think if there is a good news about this, I don't think people can psychologically sustain outrage for very much longer. It's just, it's too overwhelming. One of the most winsome things you can do in American discourse right now is to bless others. Is to bless others. To speak a eulogy, a good word over people. There's a lot of opportunity to sling mud in the world right now. And a lot of opportunities to punch back and to hit harder. It's just not the Christian way. Do not repay evil for evil, reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. You see, our Christian witness will speak most winsomely. This is a point in my sermon, but it is um, an aspiration for New City Church. Our Christian witness will speak most winsomely, not if we have uniformity of opinion in the church, But if we have self-sacrificing, self-sacrificial love for those with whom we disagree. 
I, I will read that again, and I, and I hopefully you will, you know, amen. You will amen that, my friend. Our Christian witness will speak most winsomely to a world in conflict, not, not if we have uniformity of opinion in the church, but if we have self-sacrificial love with those with whom we disagree. If even in the context of disagreement, there's blessing within the context of the church, boy, that's when you know the gospel's taken root. Just, you don't have to think hard about this. The power of the civil rights movement was in its gospel-informed, hear this, gospel-informed, non-retaliatory ethic. The civil rights movement would not have been successful had it been an eye-for-an-eye movement. That's not the movement it was. John Lewis uh, said, when I try to tell young people is what I try to tell young people is that if you come together with a mission and it's grounded with love and a sense of community, you can make the impossible possible. When you start to pop the hood open of the civil rights movement, the power of the civil rights movement was gospel informed. It was loving God and loving the neighbor informed. And so there are four domains of the life, of our life, of, of Christian life that Peter focuses on in his application of the good news life that he's calling us to live in an unjust world. And and these four categories are as citizens, as workers, as spouses, as the church, and I don't have time to unpack them all today. And quite frankly, the one that matters most to us right now is as citizens. The point is the same in each one of them, that our good works ought to be a testimony to who God is and lead to salvation. And there is honor and submission that is due to human beings. And that includes presidents and governors, and I would say presidents and governors with whom you disagree. Here's the passage, verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake, for the sake of your witness to the Lord, to every human institution. I think it's a bad translation. Uh, I think it's every human creation, every human, every created human being. Whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors who sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. In other words, the, the point of government is to bring about some uh, human flourishing and that is by God's design. Protect against evil, provide opportunities for good. Now, when you read this passage talking about submitting and being subject to, for the Lord's sake, human institutions or human, uh, human beings who happen to be emperors or governors, uh, people in authority, <laughs> the, the, the phrase I want to say, I, I can't say, I will say this. <laughs> I'll say it this way. Uh, you may, for whatever reasons you may have, you may be completely discontent with um, the American political structure right now, I can guarantee you it is not worse than it was under Nero's reign. And here Peter is saying, under Emperor Nero, being a good citizen is being a good witness. And you should be a good citizen. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. 
by doing good, by being radical in your generosity and the generosity of your life. We should honor even undeserving politicians because God loved us even when we didn't deserve it. And this is the argument Paul gives in Titus. I'm not going to explain Paul's words. You have to listen to them, and I think they are plain and they're understanding. Paul says to Titus, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For, what's the rationale Paul gives? For, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. He said, I know sometimes governors and rulers are not deserving and you have lots of reasons not to show them love and consideration and to honor them, but remember who you were. An enemy of God when he rescued you. We are to honor those who govern, not worship them though. And I think sometimes in American society, Honor has blood over to worship. Honor everyone, 1 Peter 2.17. Love the brotherhood. Fear God, worship him, worship God. Honor the emperor. There have been many times when I've been looking from the outside in at American society wondering if some people worship America and honor God. What about civil disobedience? Everybody wants to know that. What's the exception? You know, I mean, that's, I mean, because right now we're, the temperature's hot, right? What's the exception? Everybody wants to know, like, when, when can we step out? When can we, you know, when can we rebel? You know, when, when do we have the, the, the right to do those things? And there's lots of biblical examples of civil disobedience. I mean, the midwives didn't kill baby Moses when they were commanded to kill the babies. Daniel didn't stop praying when he was commanded by the authorities to stop praying. Certainly the apostles didn't stop preaching the gospel when the government said you can't preach the gospel anymore. In fact, the apostles said we shall obey God rather than man. But everybody wants to know the exceptions. But here in Peter, what he's saying is what separates Christians, a Christian's love, what, what separates Christian love and makes it distinct is that it is especially available to those who are undeserving. That's what makes it unique. Listen to the words of Jesus. I mean, listen, if you love those who love you, what, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those whom you expect to, re to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies, do good, and lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to, to the ungrateful and the evil. 
be merciful even as your father is merciful. So everyone wants to know, what about civil disobedience? What about the exception? Let's talk about that. And I want to spend the remainder of our time talking about the second mile. I just want to ask you, what about the second mile? In Matthew 5.14, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. What's he referencing? Jesus speaking. Jesus says, if a Roman soldier who could do so by law came up to you and said, here's my pack, carry it for me a mile, you had to do it because that was the law. Just or unjust, agree to, agree to it or don't agree to it, it's a law, you had to do it. And Jesus says, hey, Christians, they're second mile people. And so somebody comes and asks you to carry their pack and you're like, man, this is such an unjust law. I shouldn't have to do this. And you want to claim your rights because that's not the Christian attitude. The Christian attitude is we'll take up the pack and we'll carry it two miles. Mark Moore in his commentary said, not only must disciples reject all behavior motivated only by a desire for retaliation, but they must positively work for the good of those with whom they would otherwise be at odds. Work for the good of those who are even their enemies. To put it another way, the first mile is obligatory. The second mile is love. Christians don't just do what they're obligated to do. They go the second mile they love. See, the first mile is required. The second mile is generous. Christians don't just do what's required. They go the second mile. They get into generosity. The first mile is expected. The second mile is witness. Don't you see, because Jesus gave up his rights for me, I can give up my rights for others. I can be a second mile Christian. As the church becomes more marginalized, and that's happening right now in society, and this is what I'm praying. May her witness be seen by her love for those on the margins. Here's what I'm praying. As Christians become more and more marginalized and our rights become more and more threatened, that what you see uh, in the lives of Christians in society is a lot of second mile walkers. Doing beyond what's just expected, doing beyond what's obligatory, doing beyond what's just required, going the second mile. You see, this is Peter's strategy for evangelizing the world. This is why Christianity exploded in the first century. Because Peter's strategy for Christian evangelism in a non-Christian world is living a life of questionable love. It's being prepared to give a defense because apparently people are asking because your good works are calling into question your good father in heaven and the gift of his good son for your sins and the salvation you've received and the Holy Spirit working in you, the evidence of that salvation. I am, I am, without question disappointed that we are not meeting in person yet at New City Church. And we're working hard to make it happen. I really want this to be a part of our, I I miss seeing you. I do miss seeing you. But here's the conviction the Holy Spirit placed upon my heart, especially in light of this series. Albuquerque is not in need of more attractional church services right now. That's not what Albuquerque needs. 
It's not what America needs right now. What our society needs right now, what our city needs, what America needs, is more attractional Christians. Second mile Christians. Christians who are willing to lay down their rights for the benefits of, of others. Who are living such radically good lives that they're Good lives are seen, visibly seen. They're letting their light shine in the world. Who instead of reviling those who revile them or, or returning evil for evil, they're blessing the world. This is the work of a priest. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That is our job as priests. The good news is you're not alone. The Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you and he works in you powerfully to live the message that God's called you to live. So House Church, the series, is about saying to every one of you watching right now that you're responsible to the gospel God's given you. And although we may not be meeting in New City's physical space today you are meeting as new city and wherever you are right now and you are a priest and you are responsible to put on display the good news of Jesus with your everyday life to call into question the hope that lives within you and my prayer is that you will be ready and prepared to give a defense for that hope when people call it out of you because your life is so radically good that it calls into question the goodness of our God in heaven we end our services with three movements, generosity, prayer, and communion. Uh, we'd love for you uh, to, to be generous and to contribute to our Be Good News initiative. And so you can do so on the app. You can do so online. There's lots of ways to do it. Uh, we'd love for you uh, to be a part of the family and generosity. Uh, we're going to pray together in a second as a, as a church community. Uh, there is a Zoom prayer room. Uh, that just follows my teaching. It's on during the worship services. You can attend that Zoom prayer room. We'd love uh, to pray with you today. And uh, you do not have to activate the video if you uh, don't want to. You can just go audio only into the prayer room. Also, after the service, uh, we'll be having a live Q&A on Instagram. And uh, I hope this message raised some questions for you. I'm looking forward to answering them. Uh, do not forsake communion in your home. Take the bread break it. Remember the body of Jesus broken for you. Take the cup, drink it. Remember his blood shed for you. Let that be informative. Uh, it, it, let, let, let communion instruct your self-sacrificial service. Um, you know, he's your example. How to live a just life in an unjust world. Let's pray together as a church family. Merciful Father, help us to bless instead of curse. Maybe, may we be winsome in our love. May our good deeds done in love be a testimony to your love for us. Let our good deeds be seen and the good news be heard through our witness. Amen. God bless. Mm -hmm.